All right, everybody. Happy Saturday. Welcome to Single-Minded Conversations. I'm your host, Jesse Single. I'm a uh, podcast and author and writer. Other stuff. Um, we just had an episode of my podcast, Blocked and Reported, go up that I think is like pretty good and meaty. Of course, every episode we produce is brilliant, but this one we talk about the 10-year-old uh, getting the abortion story and Glenn Kessler's fact check and sort of what the journalistic norms should be about single-source reporting. And I also talk about – I spent some time looking into this rumor that the Leon County, Florida public schools had enacted this terrible new anti-LGBT policy. Uh, I talked about – Basically debunk this. There's sort of a, a kernel of truth there. But it's actually a really complicated story and a really good example of why experts and journalists should not spout off on Twitter and spread rumors on Twitter about stuff they don't really know much about. It just, I thought was a really good example of how pernicious Twitter is and how it makes the world a worse place, uh, you know, in the guise of sort of raising awareness and social justice and stuff, which it uh, does sometimes. So, yes, blocktoreported.org for those jessysingle.substack.com for that article. I think it'll be up Monday. I'm just copy editing, having it copy edited and uh, finishing some stuff up. Today, uh, this room will mostly be just sort of free fall, so hop in the queue if you have a question or comment. There's one possibly too niche thing I wanted to talk about briefly, which is I, I think uh, folks who read or listen to me regularly know that I do end up talking a lot about like internecine lefty conflict and wokeness, for lack of a better word. But I have a tortured relationship to this stuff. I, I sometimes find this to be like a toxic and repetitive area. I just feel like uh, no one really makes progress, and it's in, increasingly just like an online fight between journalists and academics who are much more concerned with just like winning these increasingly personal battles than improving or changing the world. And you just see people respond, reciting the same catchphrases forever. Um, Freddie DeBoer, who's a very good read, had a good article on basically, he's like, you know, there's surely there's anti-woke people who are grifters who make money off it, but it's uh, increasingly appears like there's anti-anti-woke people who do the same thing. They just make this an important part of their political identity and whatever accusations you could level at one group, you could level at the other. There was a Twitter interaction that I thought really nicely summed this up. Uh, it was between Noah Smith. He's a substacker who's sort of a neoliberal econ type. He tweeted, I think by 2050, America will be a really nice country and a great place to live, and people will largely have forgotten the current era. Alex Perrine, who's a contributing editor at The New Republic and sort of a, a lefty Twitter personality, quote retweeted that and said or uh, screenshotted it i'm not sure and said this is the underlying purely vibes based central belief of every liberal liberal with the power to determine whether this comes true freeing them from the responsibility of making it come true what i found interesting about this is um Perrine is accusing Smith of engaging in vibes-based beliefs when Smith says, by 2050, America will be a really nice country and a great place to live, and people have largely forgotten the current era. But the fact is, in terms of uh, setting aside my own beliefs, in terms of which belief is more uh, justifiable or logical, America has improved over time, and thing, quality of life has gotten better over time. That doesn't mean we don't have serious problems, but there's a tendency among some people on the left to – maybe overstate or fail to contextualize our problems and to ignore the fact that many, many people want to come here 
and that many of the people uh, supposedly most affected by America's injustices actually say they're pretty hopeful about America. That's not always the case, and people's level of optimism, whack, optimism waxes and wanes. But in terms of each side coming to resemble the other, I found it fascinating that, that Perrine accused Smith of a vibes-based analysis when it's also very vibes-based to be like, no, America sucks. And in fact... Maybe liberals are wed to one view of the world in which there's steady incremental improvement, but leftists are just as wed to the view that America is a fundamentally unjust place. So it's like if we're going to talk about vibes and and uh, prejudices and mantra reciting, I just think it's often the case that both sides do it. And I think this is really getting more and more niche, and it just must seem out of touch to a lot of people with actual problems. Neil, you're the first scholar. What's up? Hey, Jesse. So I didn't have a question before, but you just said Rutrow in the chat, and I'm a big Scooby-Doo fan, so now I have to know, are you a Scooby-Doo fan? That's interesting. I know they say, uh, no, I definitely watched some Scooby-Doo back in the day. Is is Rutrow the origin? I guess Scooby says Rutrow, so that must be the origin. So I, I looked it up. Apparently, it actually was from Astro and the Jetsons first, but I definitely know it from Scooby-Doo. It's a big Scooby-Doo thing. So. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I guess it's totally from that. But there's a lot of stuff that's... um. Uh, there was a recent example uh, I heard lately of I, I read The Attention Merchants, which has a lot on the hi- of the history of advertising. And there's a term that we totally just use uh, in day-to-day life that was just completely invented for advertising. So it's interesting when stuff gets untethered from its origin. But yes, I think rut row. I bet a lot of people now use it who don't even know where it came from. Mm, that's disappointing. Everyone should know about Scooby-Doo. It's <laughs> Very important. You should start an awareness raising campaign. Yes. Yeah. Okay. See ya. <laughs> Isaac, what is up? Is it working? Yes. How's okay. Um, do you plan on speaking to Destiny again anytime soon? I'd like to. Yeah. I would. Uh, I'd thought of. I said I would maybe have him on our podcast. We like rarely do guests. I, I'd be happy to have him on at some point, or if he ever invited me back on, I would definitely go back on. All right. Cool. Yeah. I think. Um, covering the current state of like youth transition, like all that, how that's all covered, how it's all presented, I think could be just a comprehensive view of that could be pretty good. I think for what he's been dealing with in the recent weeks, what has he, has he been talking about that subject or come under fire for it? Yeah. Like he's, well, I don't, (laughs) you'll probably have a better idea of it just talking to him directly, but yeah, that's about it. Okay. Yeah, I would be uh, happy to go back on the show. We talked a little bit about it when I went on his stream, but um, I don't know. I mean, I don't know all his political beliefs, nor do I imagine I'd agree with all of them, but he struck me as a guy who's genuinely trying to figure the world out and to develop true beliefs. And it's funny, I'm just not used to the format, so it's funny watching someone do that, uh, engage in that sort of out loud thinking while they're just getting demolished by Elden Ring bosses. So I like that format. Yeah. yeah. Cool. All right. Thanks. All good. Thanks, Isaac. Thanks, Constantine. What's up? Constantine, you got to. Ah, we lost Constantine. More folks should get in the queue because we dropped lost one. Patrick, what is up? Well, you open the door, so I'll open the window. Where are you in Elden Ring, Jesse? I am. Uh, I just tried to do the Raya Lucara Academy or whatever the hell it's called. I immediately got demolished. I'm working my th- way through that manor, um, the something-something manor, where as you approach it, 
these bolts of magic come out of the sky to try to repel you, and I just um, uh, burst through to, I think, what's called the Three Sisters. I think I'm around level 50. Okay, the manor sucks because there are a bunch of giant hands there, and they will wreck your shit. I would suggest trying Raya Lucara Academy once you get past the initial awful mages. They're n- they, you just have to deal with some dumb zombies, but it's not too, too bad. But Yeah, uh, I got destroyed. Your- go- I mean, this is boring, everyone, but I got destroyed going up the stairs because the mages with the weird fucking uh, face masks destroyed me. Yeah, if you dodge and roll them, you do better, but uh, you get used to them. All right, and now on to my real question. So Alex Perrine has what I like to refer as the kind of Gawker stink on him, where there are certain people who work at Gawker where I thought maybe it was Gawker that produced the kind of uh, pissy 20-year-old mentality, but he has to be now close to his 40s, and he still has that uh, kind of pissy mentality so uh, to be a little bit gossipy do you think there are any actual kind of journalists who are well adjusted and nice people who came from gawker uh or do you think uh it was just a wretched high villainy <laughs> uh that have created uh, a bunch of uh pissy brats who went on and infected the world with their bad attitudes i i do i do hate the style it's just like incredible um just stifling sanctimony and often sanctimony mixed with wrongness, which is a terrible combination. Tom Skoka is another one who on Twitter is just absolutely insufferable. No, not everyone from Gawker is bad. I worked with Max Reed. I think Max does good work on the internet. I like, he edited my stuff. I did uh, about internet culture at the time. Um, you know, I, she, Oh God, what's her name? The, the one who, said um, Ravi Suave was wrong, called him an idiot for questioning UVA. She wrote a book about, like, I guess sort of uh, false beliefs, basically, and the people believed in that I guess people liked. I think a lot of, like, I think Nick Denton identified and hired smart people who are snazzy writers, and I think some of them probably, you know, didn't get totally sucked into the Gawker mode. I, I think Gawker probably served an important role at the time, but overall it's maybe time for that style to go away of just like the, it's this attitude where not only am I right, are all my beliefs unquestionably correct, but the fact that anyone disagrees with me suggests they're an irredeemable asshole and moron. That's the style. And I think that's a really unhealthy style. If you're going to be a journalist or writer who ever, you know, comes up with something interesting or breaks a big unexpected story, um, my real radic- radicalizing point on this was when Deadspin, before it sort of, you know, went away in its current form. Um, after we had the full story of Covington, they did a big story encouraging the readers to stick to their view that the Covington kids did something really wrong. After we knew that that wasn't the case, and it's just there's a level of um, cultishness, and you know we're all tribal, but they're they're really into just drawing bold black lines, no matter how many times they're wrong about things. If anyone disagrees with them, that person's the asshole. I hate that. Anyway, I'm rambling. I have strong feelings about Gawker, but no, I do think some good people came out of there. Um, and uh, yeah, but a lot of people, it's, it, some of the worst lefty people on Twitter are in the Gawker extended diaspora and they just sort of suck. They might be the nicest people in the world in real life. Although I don't really think there could be that big a difference between your, Twitter persona or and your real life, or at least I think one starts to become the other. Um, but uh, uh, no, absolutely insufferable on Twitter. But you know they're not. A lot of them aren't doing well. I don't think it's a durable way of 
producing comment content. Uh, yeah, I wouldn't imagine it is. I think current Gawker is still haunting the internet, uh, even though I don't know anyone who reads it or even posts it, other than when I hear you guys uh, bitch about um, getting mentioned in there because of whatever kind of nonsense is going yeah. on. Uh, no, Gawker is a very interesting phenomenon, but I think, uh, yeah, some definitely, definitely definite shortcomings to that model. It's kind of weird that Peter Thiel, who killed it, is uh, almost kind of vindicated in internet history, given uh, the kind of current trends, even though what he did was objectively terrible. Yeah, I mean, he just wanted to destroy it for personal reasons, so that stuff gets complicated. But yeah, I think we can make you can you can critique Gawker in the Gawker style um, while setting that story aside. So yeah. All right, that's it for me, Jesse. Thanks, Patrick. Constantine, I'll try to bump you back to the front uh, see if you can get your mic working. Uh, yeah, sorry if I have audio problems. No, it's okay. How's it going? Okay. Uh, a question. Do you think that some recent Biden tweets about um, Roe, about abortion, did he use inclusive language or did he say women? It's a women's issue. What do you think? Oh, I, I don't know. I mean, I... Uh, I didn't see the tweets in question. Yeah, I mean, maybe it's surprising. It's surprising to me. He did say women. He didn't say the inclusive leaders or pregnant people. So I I'm just mean maybe it's a bit uh, to to give some uh, perception, yeah, perspective that that not everyone uh, adopts our language. Yeah, I think um, since Roe v. Wade fell, I'm just going to mute you because there's, there's mic, mic noises. Uh, I think since Roe v. Wade fell, there's that question of how to frame the debate has like has you know uh, reemerged, and I, I, it does seem like a fair number of groups are saying women, but some others are really doubling down on the idea that we should use so-called inclusive language. There was a thread I commented on from a big Virginia abortion group, uh, they just did this bizarre thread, sort of policing the way people protest, uh, saying, don't use words like women. They had this bizarre thing. They said, don't don't dress up like someone from The Handmaid's Tale, because I guess The Handmaid's Tale is racially exclusive. I, I did, couldn't even follow the complaint, but um, my argument is that this stuff is a huge fucking distraction. It generates backlash without accomplishing anything. And as I wrote in a Substack article, I don't think in this context of saying pregnant women, excuse me, sneeze. I just sneezed four times in a row. I, I um, protected you guys from it by muting myself. If you say pregnant women, I, I don't, people, I guess, will get mad at me about this. You're not actually excluding non-binary people or trans men. When you say pregnant women in that context, you obviously mean biologically female people. That's There are times when men and women might have different definitions and i'm open to the idea that we should you know trans men can be treated as men in most ways but when you say pregnant women are affected by abortion bans to me the plain reading of that is is you're saying pregnant females and pregnant females include trans men and non-binary people now if people want to say i feel not included by that because I don't identify that way. I, I guess that just cuts, gets to the heart of the weird philosophy behind this belief because 
you you are included. If someone says, uh, you know, I'm six three ish. If someone says men over six feet tall are affected by X, it's just a straightforward fact about my body. It doesn't really matter in that case, in that sentence, whether or not I feel like I'm above six four. So. I just think it's like a lot of this is sort of half baked and people haven't really thought through when self ID you know should matter or does matter and when it doesn't and in this case it just it just seems obvious that no one's actually being excluded and women is a word that actually captures who's affected by abortion and reproductive rights um does that make sense Constantine I'll uh, let me unmute you are you unmuted there Hello. Yeah, I can't hear you at all. Can you just keep your mic by your... Uh, yes, yeah, sorry, then there it we doesn't go. work. I'm, uh, does it work? Or... Yeah, it's good now. Okay. Yeah, I, I think that's a fine explain, explanation. Yeah, just most women are affected by abortion, not even the majority of trans men or non-binary men, I think. Uh... It's a very small percentage. It's like, it's not... Yes. Yeah. Uh, Anyway, that's uh, yeah. No, the, uh, thank you for the call. That's uh, okay. Thank you. Uh, I think Biden said women. I'd have to review my memory. Jamile, what's up? Hey Jesse. Hey. Um, I was just thinking that what if we are pursued? You know. Hey, you're cutting out. In t- oh man, I'm having so many tech difficulties today. Sorry, guys. Jamile, get back in the queue. Alex, what's up? Hello, yes, Jesse, can you hear me? I can. Okay, yeah, I guess this is more of a follow-up question to, um, like, your last call-in um, with, like, the trans-racial stuff. I mean, for me, like, I don't, I, I do kind of believe in race in a certain way, even though I think it's too charged of a word to describe, like, larger sections of the human family nowadays, but it, it makes more sense to me that trans-racialism like all the arguments that for transracialism, like the case of Rachel DeSouza, compared to like even trans, it, it, it seems more believable. Dolezal, you trans, mean Dolezal, right? Dolezal, yeah, Dolezal, with the trans, with trans um, gender, genderism, like the lines are more blurred between ethnic groups. Um, wait, so you're, you're saying that there's more justification for transracialism? In my opinion, I think there, I think there's a stronger argument there if it ever if it's ever allowed to gain some steam. Like, it seems like all the arguments that transgenderism has for it have already been made on be- with um, trans- for transracialism. Yeah, I mean, this was, um, gets to the heart of the, this came up uh, one or two rooms ago. You know, this was the, Rebecca Tuvel, this philosopher who wrote, uh, she wrote a paper basically saying that the arguments for accepting transgender people as the sex they say they are could be used to accept transracial people as the race they say they are and uh one obvious response to that is we have a lot more scientific evidence for gender dysphoria than any sort of racial dysphoria but the response to that argument is it's currently understood that you can be trans without gender dysphoria anyway like ask 10 trans activists do you need gender dysphoria to be trans 10 will say no so if dysphoria is not required it gets even fuzzier why we should accept one than not the other. In the case of someone like Dolezal, who spent a... I think race is pretty dumb. I'm using these terms loosely. But someone like Dolezal, who is, I don't know, ethnically 
I, I don't. It, the race and genetics gets fuzzy, but surely if you looked at her DNA, you would see so no signs of recent African lineage. But if someone like her really grows up around black people and feels comfortable in a black subculture and has a lot of black friends and family, I I could see a situation in which they come to identify as that. I mean, the idea of identifying as something is fuzzy as it is, but. I'm not sure it's like racial dysphoria, but I I don't know. I, I've never heard a good answer to this. When I wrote about this in, I think, 2015, 2014, it was treated as a settled issue and as, ridicu- as ridiculous and offensive that Tavell would even – 2017 it was actually – that Tavell would even suggest any parallels here. I've just never heard a good account of why it's offensive and logically ridiculous. And then I guess I had another – this is another subject that I was wondering about, um, just like kind of like – the, um, I guess I want to see more leftists than liberals using like um, certain emphasis on language to try to like um, denigrate anybody who um, doesn't believe like they do. I think um, recently I saw a situation. I can't remember. It was I have to go look up the YouTuber. I mean the Twitter person again. But um, the the DA of um, San Francisco they elected a new one. It's a a black Latina woman, I believe, and. Um, they kicked out Bowden. Bowden. I don't know how to say his name. B O U D I N. They kicked him out. Bowden, yeah. Bowden, Bowden. Yeah, they kicked him out. And then, like, um, I've seen, like, now she's firing people, and now they're trying to make it look like she's, like, a racist or something. And I'm, like, I'm kind of confused. Well, her, her opponents, who are more leftists, like, for instance, I think it was a, a guy, a white guy who didn't even live in San Francisco, was charging her as being a racist, which I thought was kind of an odd charge coming from that direction. Yeah, I mean, um, yeah, people people throw around these claims in a very promiscuous way that I think makes it harder to take them seriously, which is bad. People clearly weaponize these claims in progressive circles, which is not a good thing to do. Okay. That was pretty much it. Cool. Thanks, Alex. Kennedy, welcome okay. back. What is up? What's going on, Jesse? Can, can you hear me? How's it going? Yeah, man. Um, I just wanted to find out um, in the spirit of your social science detective and uh, looking at Ashodi work and <clears throat> seeing what stands up and doesn't. Have you ever looked at stereotype threat and uh, how much of that has stood up to the replication crisis? Yes. Stereotype threat. Uh, God, I think I had a couple paragraphs about this in a story I did for The Times when my book came out. Um no, stereotype threat does not hold up very well. Uh, or, hold on, I'm just going to do a quick Google search so I can remember what I said. I looked into this was like one of those things where I looked into it briefly to get the general sense of it for like two paragraphs in a bigger story. Stereotype threat. Um, Tweet, I did a tweet from 2017 that said stereotype threat is seriously teetering under the weight of failed replications. Yeah, there's oh, an right. NPR, NPR story from 2016. Um, yeah, I, I think some of the early studies had these like massive effects. I don't know if they were massive. Pretty big effects. That, like, I'm trying to think of how to explain this in a non-boring way. People's ability to do math is like pretty set and influenced by a number of factors and the idea that for example you could simply you could cause a girl to do significantly worse on math just by like reminding her she's a girl and of those stereotypes i don't think that's like a that realistic account of 
how humans work. And I thought there was always reason to be skeptical. But if you just Google my name, stereotype threat, you'll at least get a NPR article from 2016 that um, I think was about a failed replication. All right. Yeah, because um, if you, I mean, if, like you're saying, if you just do like a quick Google scholar, you'll see loads of studies sort of uh, reporting moderate to large effects on the different settings where some others use like online avatars and if you if it's if it's a woman that has a male avatar they do supposedly do better and if it's the opposite they do worse and i even saw one on sports performance apparently it affects people's like sports performance if you say you throw like a girl or something like that you actually so I, was, I, I wondered but i had seen it on lists from like other psychologists of lists of things that hadn't stood up to replication but i just wanted to see if, if it's something that you've specifically looked at and you know yeah as you could tell from my fumbling response i haven't looked into it that much but yeah i think um, there's been some major replication issues it's also one of the things i didn't fully appreciate till i wrote my book is you can have a phenomenon and then you can generate an impressive looking bibliography of like 15 studies appearing to replicate it published in top journals but in, until you do the full work of a meta-analysis and like really trying to try to average all the studies on something, including unpublished ones, and do that in a careful, systematic way, like unfortunately, there's so much bad science that even the existence of a bunch of studies showing something can't doesn't really prove that the thing is real or replicable. All uh, right, yeah, because I think I remember reading was it um Russell T. One's book on intelligence that has a, a chapter in there saying that the recent sort of large samples and pre-registered study, they struggle so in like, especially in school kids, because this is where you, if, if an intervention is going to work, this is where you'd want it to work in sort of like high school kids. And he was saying that the, the, the results haven't been very kind to, to, to the phenomenon. But yeah, no, that's just, uh, I just wanted to find out about that and see, and see what's going on. <clears throat> Thanks, Henry. Yeah, you're ahead of the, head of the game on me because I haven't read his book. I've been meeting Russell T. Wine's book on uh, intelligence. I'd, I'd like to read that. Hopefully, I will. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's a really good one. You should check it out. <clears throat> Thanks, Kenny. Appreciate it. Sure. Eliana, what's up? Hi, Dressy. Can you hear me? Um, so I was just wondering if there's if you see this distinction or maybe um, it's something that I don't really see talked about, but in the uh, pronouns and specifically the pregnant people discussion. Um, I think it's ridiculous that when people try to bully or groups try to bully you into to using inclusive language or say that you're bigoted if you don't. But I don't see the, um, the kind of the mirror opposite thing that's happening, which is people trying to bully uh, those who are using the inclusive language into not using it. Um, like jo what Josh Hawley did at that um, at that Senate hearing. I mean, he, obviously it's going to make her her look a little bit silly, but he's basically d taking the same, uh, you know, tactic and turning it around and saying that if you use the inclusive language, then you're um, not, a, you're, you know, you're the one that's in the wrong. I think yeah. it, feels, it feels like we should be able to live and let live. If people want to use the inclusive language, it's not bad. If people are bullying others to use it, that's bad. But there's yeah. no talk about that. Well, yeah. in the case of Hawley, he's obviously trying to politically, yeah, right. politically grandstand. And I think, um, to me, it's like... I feel uh, like it gets, lumped in, it gets lumped in people who are bullying and then people are just using it on their own. Yeah. Well, to me, it's like really there has been a sense of coercion. Like all these groups yeah, are no. doing it because they feel like they'll get... And, and it's also just, to me, politically, the most important thing is... Uh, <laughs> Every 
fucking school board meeting, every town hall, everything going into the 2022 election is going to be conservatives trying to get liberals to answer the question, what is a woman? Well, that's and, where I get like, what, yeah. what is your answer? How do you answer that question? It's not really actually, I don't think Josh Hawley could answer it in a way that made sense. Like, it's not really an easy question. Because, no, I mean, I, I think it's yeah. fine to say women are adult human females, but we should in most situations include include trans women. Well, in or that. You don't even, yeah, that's a good way to answer it. I'm just saying that it's not like it's a it's, it's supposed to be a trick question. And that's not healthy either, just like it's not healthy to coerce people into saying pregnant people. Both are coercive and, like, not fair. Yeah. No, I mean, I, look, I don't want to if, – if groups decide this is the best way to go, I just think people um, – when Josh Hall during the Hawley exchange, it was shocking to me how many people thought that she got the better of that. Oh, I and, agree. Yeah. Um, when I thought – he made her look. He's. I don't. I don't. I don't like Josh Hawley. I definitely don't want yeah. Josh Hawley to be president uh, at all. But I just thought he managed to make her look pretty silly pretty easily. And you know that's something to be concerned about. No, I know. I agree. And I think. I think she did sound silly. I think it's. Just, and I think. Um, I'm more talking about like you know not someone in the general public on their own decides that they want to start using an inclusive language. They get lumped in with people who are forcing others to yeah. use it. Like, just because someone says that... They're not hurting you by saying it or making you do anything. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah. Anyways, thanks. Thanks, Eliana. Ben, you will be the last call. Ben, you got to uh, unmute yourself. There we go. Yeah, can you hear me all right? I got... Yeah, great. Uh, Yeah, no, I just wanted to say, um, I I recently bought your book, which was recommended for me, so... Uh, it, it looks good, but I, I've been curious, um, I, I guess for a while now, uh, is that you, you obviously have this very strong uh, interest in social science generally, I, I guess scientific journalism broadly. Um, do you have, like, I mean, have you ever thought that there were roads that you could go down, things to write about that wouldn't necessarily set Twitter ablaze, that, I don't know, that you would be interested in, that you could maybe leave some of the more unpleasant online discourse behind yeah i i no i want to it's a like i said it's a tortured relationship because you know first of all i need to write a newsletter seven times a month i need to produce about seven podcast episodes a month and the easy snappy stories to respond to often have a culture war element uh so that's tricky. I do. I have a couple like ideas for longer magazine articles that would have basically nothing to do with the culture wars, and I would much rather go back to writing more about that. It's just it's often hard to find the time. And like, frankly, as a journalist, if if the business side of things is going well and you have an opportunity to like bank some money and save, build up your savings, you just sort of need to take it because journalism's in such shambles and you don't know when you're next going to have that opportunity. It could be three years from now. If things are still going okay, I'll feel differently, but it just sort of feels like you've got to work hard now. And if that means producing a lot of short stuff and too much culture war stuff, so be it. Uh, I'm hoping that in the long run, I'll be able to do more long form stuff. And I do have, you know, a couple ideas in the works that I just need to find the time to to pitch and hopefully get published in magazines. That's I'll just add a little bit on to the end of that, if you don't mind. Um, I guess, I've been wondering for a while then, you know, if there are these pressures on journalists uh, and they've got to be on the thing that will get the most eyes on screen uh, every day or every week, whatever it is. I mean, I'm guessing there's, you know, dozens, hundreds, God knows how many interesting stories that are perhaps quite important that presumably aren't being reported on. 
And has anyone yeah. or have you ever thought about like actually what is being left by the wayside here? Like what should we be reading about that we can't? No, I mean, that, look, that's that's a big that's a big question, and there's the incentives are complicated. So like so like right now, if a woman has to a vulnerable woman has to live through a nightmarish process because of the overturn of Roe v. Wade, that if she can get access to a journalist, that story will be told. There are types of stories about vulnerable people, important stories that will get told because they fit in the present political currents. But there's a lot of stories uh, that are less likely to get told than ever before. If there is a... I'm making this up, but if there's a, a scandal at City Hall in Columbus, Ohio, it's less likely than ever before that there will be a journalist whose job is to cover that city hall and who will know how to do so. Um, the this, this controversy in Leon County, I'll, I'll point people to the podcast and to my <coughs> excuse me my newsletter. But part of the reason misconceptions spread about this trans kids policy in Leon County is because the woman who's usually on that beat in Tallahassee for the Tallahassee Democrat was just out sick randomly with a medical emergency during a crucial school board meeting. Her fill-in was an undergraduate who I think is a very good reporter, but just wasn't really able to capture what happened at that school board meeting because she wasn't familiar with it. So whether one, and there are all these stories where whether or not they get told and whether or not they get told accurately is just a matter of luck of, of the right sort of being journalists being there to capture it. And yeah, you're right. Countless, thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of stories are now not getting told because newsrooms have been eviscerated. It's just hard to parachute in from Brook, like from Brooklyn. How do you find the story in Ohio that needs to be told? How do you pay to travel there? How do you? Oftentimes, you need to spend fifty or sixty hours reporting on one story before you even know exactly what it is and and if it can get published anywhere. So. If you're a staff journalist making a decent salary, uh, you have a certain degree of leeway to explore and to talk to people and to do off-the-record interviews. You just have a slightly more forgiving schedule. Uh, so, yeah, I'm, I'm rambling at this point, but I, there's journalists like me should seek out the stories that haven't been told. It's just much easier said than done because you have to parachute into unfamiliar areas and quickly catch up and spend a lot of time. Just to get, just to explain the basics of this Leon County thing, I think took me thirty or forty hours of work, so it, it's hard. Yeah, great, thanks. That was an overlong answer on my part. All right, we'll do one bonus call. Lux Arific will be our actual final caller. Unless going once. All right. Might have to wrap it up there then. Sorry for the technical difficulties. Uh, thank you guys for listening. Definitely check out the next episode of the podcast, blockedreporter.org. My story on Leon County will be up, I hope, by Monday. Monday, jessysingle.substack.com. There's also a story I did um, for paid subscribers but with a with a free preview on – Indiana's bizarre abortion law, which actually overlaps in an interesting way with my interest in sort of shoddy social science practices. So folks might want to check that out. Uh, but yeah, thank you guys for listening. I would just ask if you like the show, if you like what I do, tell friends about it. Try to get more people in these rooms. But uh, thank you guys so much for joining and have a good Saturday. Farewell.